0: Hi everyone, welcome to The Curious Hour. I am Chirag Sena, and I will be your host for this podcast episode. This podcast is in association with Canonwala. The Instagram handle is C-A-N-O-N underscore W-A-A-L-A. Head over to his page for some amazing photographs after this podcast. Coronavirus, the virus that has wreaked havoc across the world. And every day, we are discovering newer aspects of this virus. So today, we have someone who we can call a frontline worker. He is a medical practitioner as well as a COVID survivor. So please, join me in welcoming Dr. Vedant Shukla. Hi Vedant, how are you doing?
1: Hi Chirag, I'm doing good, recovering from corona as it is. That's all, how are you
0: doing? I am doing good, thank you. So, for our audience, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what's your background?
1: Sure. So, I am. I studied. uh, Started studying medicine. That is MBBS from in two thousand fifteen in a small city called Farad from an institute known as Krishna of Medical Sciences. But I'm currently doing my internship at JJ Hospital Mumbai. So along with medicine, you know, I have a lot of other passions that I like to take up and do from time to time. Uh, one of them being MUNs, the other is social work. So I work as a director of health and nutrition for Sahair, which is a social venture that wants seed funding from New York based organizations to tackle mental health and hygiene. I also worked recently. Have joined the board of advisory to the Plain jar That is an activism and outreach program which provides psychosocial economic aid for victims of abuse, LGBTQI plus youth, and to help uh, you know to foster better mental health amongst young people other than that i'm also working as a project head at a national level under the public health stewardship program under asian medical students association of india with a target of sdg5 that is gender equality with a special focus on sexual and gender based one so that's a little bit about me and what i do that's
0: a lot on your plate i'm amazed how you manage everything so well oh, thank you so much uh,
1: trying to do as much as <laughs> you know for a better world
0: yeah i mean this- you said is like huge honestly okay so now that since you're associated with jj hospital which is as far as my knowledge goes it's a hospital under the municipality of mumbai so what is the scenario there in terms of like beds infrastructure manpower etc Related to the COVID response.
1: Okay. So, uh, actually, JJ comes under the state government's ambit and uh, gets funding from the state government. Whereas your other hospitals, such as Sain, Nair, Cooper, KEM, are all under the BM. So, a little bit about JJ is we are currently designated as a non-COVID hospital, but under JJ's the main hospital, we have four peripheral hospitals, so that is St. George, Kama Hospital and one more, but mainly St. Okay. George, Kama and JJ is where the interns are posted from time to time, and so I was posted for two months, posting at OBGYN in Kama Hospital, and I think the day, almost two days after I joined is when Kama got designated as a COVID hospital and St. George is also a COVID hospital. So yeah, basically we were, so as much as JJ is a non-COVID hospital, we interns were posted at COVID hospitals for duty from time to time. Regarding the fact COVID, non-COVID, it really doesn't matter much as of now anymore because uh, even at JJ Hospital when we work, there are a lot of times where we get a lot of patients who come in and due to policy, we test all patients that are admitted and um, whether they show symptoms or they don't show symptoms and a lot of them turn out to be positive much later anyway and so then we have okay, to transfer okay. them. So it's, you're still at risk whether you're working at a COVID hospital or not covid hospital anymore, especially in a city like Mumbai which has so many cases going on and there's a widespread community transmission going on. So even working in a clinic is as dangerous as working in a COVID hospital nowadays. In fact, when I was admitted in the hospital at Seven Hills, half of the floor was filled with doctors in our ward, right? And other half were patients. And in the half that were doctors, there were two of them I remember who were private practitioners who were general practitioners, you know based in Malad, contracted the disease and the virus so that you know the conditions is almost prevalent and same everywhere the only difference i think i would say is that as a you know as a state government funded institute we are getting enough pp kits now right and in the start we did have like a shortage of pp kits but since india has become mm-hmm. the second largest manufacturer of pp kits i think we've gapped that bridge between the shortage but Other than that, when it's concerned to the number of beds, I think... as such in Mumbai, we were running short, but we have a sufficient number of deaths now as the cases increase and increase. I think the only discrepancy that I would think would be, you could call unfair would be that, you know, I, so I come from a private institute, right? And coming mm-hmm. from a private institute, going and working at a government institute, I have paid money to do my internship over there because I'm mm-hmm. from a private institute, which I understand. But then at such times and such precarious Various times where we are putting our lives into danger, right? And I had myself contracted the disease. We are not getting yes. compensation. So, all the BMs yes. uh, and hospitals are paying their interns 50000 and, you know, an additional travel allowance and whatnot. But at the government, at, you know, the center, uh, the state run hospitals like JJ, my co interns who belong from JJ themselves are getting only 13000 despite being exposed. To the virus, you know, at different places like Saint George Hospital and Kama Hospital, and at JJ Health because we get a lot of patients who turn eventually, you know, test positive. And mm-hmm. we, as externs who come from private institutes, we don't even get anything. Kind of, uh, you know, disparity in you know the pay, right? From fifty thousand, it directly drops to thirteen thousand for you know the government students from JJ Health and. For right. our private students, we are not paid anything despite the life you know, our lives and a family's life being in danger. And that is something that they should really consider and look into because if you are ready to pay students, right? Your third, your final year students who are mm-hmm. practically don't have a degree, an honorarium area of thirty thousand for working every month in a hospital during the COVID pandemic, then why not even pay us? And we do almost as much as we do the same kind of work and the same kind of labor that any of the interns from a government hospital do. Yeah, I mean,
0: everything is yeah. same. The virus is same. The working conditions are same. The risk is same. Everything is same. It's just that the pay is, there's a hell in heaven difference between the pay of state government hospitals and the ones operated by BMC.
1: Exactly. That's all. And that's, that's it's not uh, fair if I was to say something about it. I feel like maybe we can also be paid an honorarium I'm not saying to pay us when, it's you know, that we deserve probably pay if this whole situation was not existing, but when this kind of situation is there and we're putting our lives at risk as much as the next person, right? Then why not give us that equal amount of pay?
0: Right. I mean, it's after all labor. It's after all uh, manual labor. There's nothing automatic, not automated process, which is there. Exactly. So I do understand. Since now that we have... uh, entered into, you know, discussing about COVID. Uh, There are a lot of patients who do not have COVID, but have some other critical illnesses and they have to come and visit the hospital often. So how are, I mean, these hospitals and the doctors and the medical interns, how are you dealing with this population basically?
1: So uh, if I may add, actually, you know, the government has thought about it very beautifully and gone about it where they've designated certain hospitals as COVID-only hospitals and certain hospitals as non-COVID hospitals. And then there are certain hospitals function with a COVID war. So what this helps us do is maintain the burden and focus on non-COVID diseases also. Because, you know, it's a pandemic right now and the number of cases are exponentially increasing, the number of deaths also increasing. But then if we were to talk Mm -hmm. about certain facts and bring up things that are probably, you know, more children dying due to diarrheal diseases on a daily basis, most likely, you know, then number of de- adults dying due to COVID per day. And this is, you pull out the statistics of uh, heart attacks per day and the strokes per day and everything, and you will be shocked. But those are just things we've got very sensitized to as society and, you know, as something as normal or something as acceptable or something that you cannot do anything about. But COVID, mm-hmm. because, you know, is tagged with that whole, Title of pandemic and it's new and you know a lot a lot about it is known somewhere mm. in all of that you know there's a panic that is growing so right, everybody's right, there right. but in this sort of sense that the government has taken a very beautiful sense in segregating the hospitals in a certain way so that the burden of non uh, for non COVID diseases but yet life threatening and severe are there. Right. So, but at the, uh, the more hospital level talking about it, right, the plan of action that we normally take is we keep a transit form. So all patients who come in are, uh, are treated as suspected cases of COVID. Now we look at everyone as if they are on the viewpoint of they have COVID. So okay. they are right. Right. the transit ward and they are tested. Their oral uh, swap tests are done. And uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as in when the swap tests come back, the reports of the swap tests come back, which generally due to the increased capacity testing that the government has done very well again, if I might add. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the reports come back generally within the same day or by the next day mostly, uh, depending on right. the re- we move them. So if, if it's a positive patient, <laughs> so you can have more than one disease at the time and still have COVID, right? And you can have a life-threatening disease and have COVID. And and, and it could be totally, uh, you know, unlinked. Uh, so so right. what happens is if, if it, the patient comes positive, if it's a non-COVID hospital, then they immediately shift it to a COVID hospital. So at JJ, we should then, you know, if they have severe, uh, if, they, if it's a life-threatening disease and they've got COVID, then we should then, you know, generally to... St. George Hospital and whereas okay. uh, if they're a pregnant woman, we shave them to come Yeah, yeah. And uh, okay. so they are then shifted and kept at the positive ward in those particular hospitals. Whereas if right. it's negative, right. then they shifted to the ward, the normal ward that we uh, anyways admit all the negative patients into.
0: Okay, okay. So
1: that's a little bit on what we so, do at the hospital level to just manage and maintain, you know, more safety for everyone. Not just ourselves but the patients include
0: so like since the last few days, so there has been a lot of talks uh, especially uh, I mean the news reports are coming that India and Israel are trying to develop you know testing method which can deliver the results in one minute, and also this there's testing and there's also a lot of news reports coming on the virus so if you can explain for our audience that you know so, we we hear the words antigen, we hear RNA, we hear DNA. So for us, non medical people, if you can explain what exact these terms, so it it will be actually beneficial for the uh, for the audience.
1: Of okay. course. So as you know, the coronavirus is we live and yeah. terms this coronavirus, but it's actually known as the SARS-CoV-2. That is severe acute respiratory coronavirus two, and the reason why it's named two. Is because we have a previous virus, uh, belonging to the same group of virus known as coronaviruses, and that's called severe yeah. acute respiratory virus, which caused a uh, an epidemic, let's say, in back in I think 2003 yeah. in China, where uh, there was this virus spreading across, and in we have a similar right. other virus called as Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome virus, which was uh, making its way yeah, the Middle East and included, uh, you know, a little bit of Taiwan, South Korea and everything. So, uh, that's right, right, all right. basic Morse. yeah, Morse, Middle Eastern respiratory 3 So, I think the origin of that <laughs> was from a camel that came from the Middle East, but it not only was contained in the Middle East, it also spread a little bit towards, you know, your Taiwan, South Korea and everything. And that's why you see Taiwan, South Korea very prepared because they've gone through this kind of situation before. And they knew what they had to mm-hmm. do immediately to jump on the shoe. So talking a little bit more about, you know, what is RNA? DNA is basically your, uh, your material, your, uh, genetic material. So RNA stands for, mm-hmm. uh, carbonucleic acid. DNA stands for uh, the same. In but the only difference between RNA and DNA is that DNA, uh, RNAs generally tend to found in, uh, living organisms that is, uh, more primitive in thought. And DNA is considered okay. to be a more uh, advanced kind of genetic material. Uh, but it really, okay. RNA was ribonucleic acid and DNA was uh, deoxyribonucleic acid. Mm-hmm. RNA is considered a bit more primitive and DNA is considered more advanced form of genetic material. And uh, yeah, so we were talking about uh, rt p- uh, RTPCR, which is, stands for RNA Real-Time Polymerase Chain Reaction. So what it basically does is when we take a swab from your throat or your nose, we Hmm. we basically trying to pick up the genetic material of the virus. And once we pick up the genetic material, polymerase chain reaction is a kind of test where we kind of expand, you know, that genetic material because we would be capturing very little of it. So we'll be duplicating. So polymerase chain reaction is kind of a genetic test, you know, where uh, duplication of the genetic material caught from your throat or nose is uh mm-hmm. amplified so that you know it can be uh, sequenced or cross match with the sequence of genetic material we already know about the SARS coronavirus 2 so okay is, okay you know answer whether this is a, the SARS coronavirus 2 test uh Genetic materials from the SARS coronavirus, too, or not? So, that's a little bit about the test. Right? Okay. I hope that's a little clear. If it's not, you can ask me. I'll, I'll probably explain it again. I'll
0: ask my audience to contact you personally if they have more <laughs> questions over <this. laughs>
1: No issues. I'm all in So, talking a little bit about the yeah. coronavirus, it's got an outer protein coat, okay, a lipoprotein code, and it's got a little mm-hmm. spike on it. And <laughs> what, from what I have read now is these spikes that are dangerous. And get attached to the receptors in your throat and your that is your respiratory system known as ACE two inhibitor. Okay. okay. A lot of medicine of it and everything and what ACE two and all does. Uh, it's a little complicated and everything. But basically, it helps mm-hmm. to maintain really maintaining your blood pressure too. And so that's probably uh, okay. probably where a lot of pathology with heart disorders and blood clotting disorders and you know uh, where hypertension and diabetes play factor into as comorbidity the uh, disease too and uh, this in this spike, in this lipoprotein envelope layer you have your genetic matter so once it you know attaches onto the receptors it binds into the cell and then it starts duplicating you know the then the virus breaks apart And the genetic material Mm -hmm. comes out and the genetic material integrates with the uh, cell's genetic material and starts replicating its Okay, okay. So So basically, it's like your cell becomes an incubator for the virus. Okay, okay. Because of all of these reactions, your body starts reacting to the virus too. It starts causing symptoms. So not only a lot of symptoms of the virus are due to the virus itself, but sometimes it's also due to your body reacting to the virus.
0: So I mean it is said that there is also a group of people who are asymptomatic and there are also a group of people who are symptomatic. Now if you are saying that the virus if it attaches to the ACE inhibitors and they I mean my body responds to it then how come the asymptomatic people are there without any symptoms?
1: So a little bit of this uh, what I could tell you is a, a little empirical and not evidence-based, you know, because we still don't know much about the virus as a whole, but what okay. we can see is that it depends on the person's immunity and their comorbidities too, right? So we have your asymptomatic group and then we have your symptomatic group, and in your mm-hmm. symptomatic group, you know, right. we have mild, moderate, and severe, right? right? And in your mild, in the mild form of disease, you know, you have just you know simple flu-like symptoms is which is what i had you know you know sore throat a cold body ache, Mm -hmm. fatigue, and stuff like that whereas in your mod they do have the form of lung involvement you know and you know uh, that that is causing you know oxygen mismatch perfusion mismatch that is you're not because if you know the virus infecting your lungs, there's not enough oxygen <laughs> you're getting. And that's why most people, that's the most common cause of death due to corona, because your lungs start getting infected and you start getting the pneumonia and not enough oxygen that your body requires. And then the severe form is, the, <laughs> you know, a more severe form of the moderate form, where your lungs are severely affected and now you need to be put on a ventilator. So from what I have okay. it, it it depends on, you know, your age. The kind of immunity you have, uh, your comorbidities you have, uh, and most people who are asymptomatic tend to be of the younger ages. Uh, mm-hmm. They tend to have good immunity, no comorbidity. Whereas people who have now say, "I uh, even though I'm young, the fact that I have a mm-hmm. comorbidity is that I'm mildly hypertensive and I am obese." That played into the positive factor mm-hmm. of me having uh you know some form of uh, symptoms there whereas okay okay uh, if you, you consider like my father if he were to contract with god forbid ever he's around 60 years old he has hypertension he has diabetes he probably have you know more moderate or severe form of the disease whereas i think chirag you on the other hand with no comorbidity mm. a healthy lifestyle and a good immunity You'll probably be asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. The maximum act we could probably would have had also could be just like a cold. But this is not to say that it does not affect young people severely too. we we've noted cases mm-hmm. in different parts of the country and abroad too, where it has taken mm-hmm. like young people as young as like 15 and 20. So, you know, this kind of understanding of the virus is lacking because of how new it is to us. And that's somewhere mm-hmm. what implicates in the panic that is spreading due to the virus. too. Right. So like
0: since you have been a COVID survivor, <clears throat> so since the day you started having symptoms of COVID to the day you got tested positive, what was going through your mind? Like, did you ever feel like, okay, so this is the end of me and <laughs> I'm done in in my life this is the end (laughs) goodbye world did you you feel like that or something
1: I will not lie there were times where there was anxiety that was driving me along so I'll give you a little bit overview of uh, what was going on in my mind i was working uh three shifts that week and everything and uh the night shift that i had gone and i had slept off right i come back at eight in the morning from the night shift and i had gone to sleep and i got up i woke up with a little bit of mm-hmm. chill right i was feeling excessively cold with the sheet on and in mumbai it is so unusual for that to happen right absolutely and i was feeling a little privileged but my temperature was normal so at that point you know okay. I. T- with uh, one of my residents saying you know this is what I'm feeling and uh, mm-hmm. she said, let me know how you feel in a while and then in a while I was feeling better than she said it's probably just exhaustion you worked a lot the last week and you have you're ending your OBGYN posting so you know you're working a lot this week too and uh, I said so it's, basically, it's
0: a I mean uh, an after effect of overworking
1: yeah you know just uh, you're tired exhaustion you know and exhaustion can and uh right, right. yeah so but then i had this sore throat which i've had for a while with me now since a while mm-hmm. and that sore throat started also getting worse in these few days and i probably okay. w- w- thought you know it is not corona it's just probably you know the coldings i'm having and everything <laughs> my bad for having all mm-hmm. of that in such a time while working <laughs> but couldn't escape it but yeah i i thought you know i was being more careful this month i I was wearing protective gears at all times, so even though I was in contact with non-positive cases, I didn't really consider Mm -hmm. this to be COVID and everything. In fact, the night before I got tested, I was on duty and everything, and uh, me and the doctors, some of the doctors, you know, we ate food together for a while.
0: Oh my god.
1: Yeah, but luckily they uh, turned out asymptomatic, so they didn't have to get tested. Uh, One, two of them got tested, but turned out negative. Now... It turned out negative then. Uh, after like two weeks they turned positive too because of working with the positive patient but yeah uh, so initially you know when it came positive it was a little traumatic I couldn't understand what was going on because that morning I was first mm. told I was negative and so I kind of broke myself in isolation you know kind of went and ate with my parents and then I was, told, mm. I was told positive later so then the first thing that kept going on to my because you know my dad is old he has like hypertension he has diabetes and so you know I Right, really right. and uh, then once I think I got admitted you know and there was space for me in a hospital was made and everything I kind of felt a little like at ease but I was still really constantly worried about my parents after like two mm-hmm. to three days when they didn't show symptoms right I was more at ease so I wasn't really worried about me per se because I felt like as a younger person I would go through it but yes there was mm-hmm. a time when uh, they were going to check for any kind of lung involvement and they were doing tests for that and, you know, the test would come back after the whole entire day. And so that particular mm-hmm. day, I was very anxious and I couldn't really sleep because, you know, I was really hoping there was no lung involvement and, you know, I had no right. kind of sleep right. for my lungs because I'm still young. I have my whole life to go. Uh, exactly. exactly. To happen to my lungs. So, yeah, that, that, that was a very anxiety-driven moment then when they were testing okay. for the lung. But otherwise, uh, it was not like, I knew I was going to pass through it. And I think somewhere I got hope from the fact that uh, I was living in the same room as an 81 year old man who had hypertension and diabetes and fell, but survived. Okay. So I so knew yeah, like, I mean,
0: somewhere he, there, your co patients do give you hope.
1: Yeah, they do, of course, man. Uh, like an 81 year old man, you know, who <clears throat> has diabetes and hypertension, that, that sounds like a death sentence in today's time with corona around. He survived. Mm-hmm then i couldn't die it's just a matter of keeping a positive attitude now towards it and fighting it in a sensible way you know the way it is advised to do of course it was right. not gonna help if i didn't follow the exercises my doctor told me or take the medications on time that the doctor told me or eat healthy food that's all mm-hmm. required
0: so um like after your stint in the hospital what all did you do while you were recuperating
1: so uh once i came to so at the hospital it was all uh that they gave me and everything, of you know, the medication, food, everything. Once I came mm-hmm. back home, I followed a little bit of quarantine for a week and an extra additional week because, you know, I had a sore throat that is not going and I can't get tested mm-hmm. again. So I just thought, you know, just for safety sake, quarantine myself. But yeah, what I did was I did my basics. I did hot water gargling with salt in the night. I did steam three times in a day. I made sure I ate good food, which was healthy, like, you know, stuck to a little bit of dal fishery, you know, a little bit lightly fried vegetables, nothing too oily, nothing too spicy. I kept having hot water from time to time. My medications had to be stopped because since I was uh, at home and my disease my symptoms were mild. Uh, the only medication I was taking were vitamin C, using a little bit of wit- uh, vitamin D, C. Mm-hmm. and uh, constantly replenishing myself with fluids like water I was having or cada uh, my mom used to make and keep giving me kada. So that's a I mm-hmm. bit to have. And uh, just for the safety of my parents, you know, and everything, I didn't venture out of the room as such and uh, whenever they used to give me food it used to be you know in paper and plastic cups and plates everything that was disposable for like a week week and a half just so that you know okay. they do not contract the virus through any surface yeah
0: it's very it must be very hard to you know being uh detached from your parents for almost a week and you mean you're treated in isolation so i'm sure it must be a little tough but yeah for the greater good you have to do it
1: yeah exactly and uh The positive side of all of this that I'm trying to focus on is that... Now, uh, I have never done blood donation because I've already always had a fear of needles. But now Mm -hmm. I think I would compel myself to go donate, you know, my plasma because hopefully my antibodies one day would fight
0: Mm -hmm. and help save someone else's life. So now I'm going to uh, take this quote out of your uh, out of this podcast saying that you have fear of needles, but you are the one who suggests people to go under needles and give their blood tests (laughs) and so on
1: and so forth. Yes, uh, you can quote me on that. I guess that's a little bit fixed of mine as a doctor. I'm very scared of needles. I am very fearful of needles. (laughs) The nurses have the worst time with me. I I will keep, you know, give me two minutes, give me two minutes, give me two minutes. But yeah, this time I I would generally have to go ahead and uh, overcome my fear because it's a matter of trying to save someone else's life. And hopefully that will happen.
0: So what are some of the myths which are there surrounding covid so, I mean, I would like to have a myth buster from your end.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, uh, one, some of the myths that I've heard is one generally that if young people roam around without mask is fine, you know, they're young, they'll survive it and everything. Sure, you'll survive huh. it. Maybe, maybe not. There are young people as young as 16 and 20 who have passed away due to the virus but more importantly you might survive it but you might carry the disease around and give it to your parents or elderly people in your vicinity who might not survive the virus because of it and that's very sad. Mm -hmm. Another myth that I've heard is that if you are above 16 you are definitely going to die from the virus. That is absolutely a myth. I can testify to the fact that I had uh, an 81-year-old co-patient living next to me who had diabetes, who had hypertension, but survived and got discharged. So there is no, no... There's no hard and fast rule that you, if you have diabetes, if you have hypertension, if you are old, you will not survive. It's just a matter of catching the disease early. If you see yourself having symptoms, please report to the nearest authority. Get yourself tested quickly and get admitted so that you can be given the required treatment that is there. In fact, the BMC is giving drugs like remdesivir, which are very difficult to get. Right. But still giving it out right now so you can imagine the kind of effort they are taking
0: so i mean i've heard in a few news reports this drug remdesivir and fabipir if i'm if i spelling it correct Uh, pronouncing it correct uh so these are the drugs which uh, impact your lungs which impact your kidneys which impact your liver how i mean uh, although there are more research to be done but how i mean have you ever seen any case that you know people having covid uh they take this medicine they get cured but then they come back and uh report uh you know problems with the kidney liver or the
1: heart okay so uh as far as i'm concerned i haven't honestly seen anything yet and uh to be okay. honest it would be too early also to pre- comment on something like that because for when it comes to cardiac pathology and kidney pathology it mm-hmm. takes a while before we see something going wrong right it develops through time and uh covid is relatively new and so uh you know right now to see something would be a little difficult and so w- that's something i would probably not be able to comment upon but i can guarantee that with uh, a drug like remdesivir i have seen people get jawed uh i have seen people uh lung capacity and uh, uh improve uh, in that mm-hmm. that their oxygen increase you know i have seen a doctor whose oxygen, cup, uh, oxygen saturation rate was somewhere 86% and she had a severe patch on her left lung. And after five days of treatment with remdesivir, her oxygen saturation came up back to 92-93 and she didn't even require oxygen after that. Wow. These drugs are working, but as per when the long-term effects of the drug is concerned, that's something we will only get to know much, much later.
0: Okay. So since you are also associated with uh, organizations which are into mental health, So the lockdown has had an impact on our mental health pretty much on almost everybody, even the ones who are very, very, who have a very, very strong mind are dealing in the fear of losing their sources of income or uh, in general, what lies ahead of them. So in this juncture, what would be your advice or what would be your suggestion to the people?
1: Mental health is something that is complicated, right? But uh, yet, it's something that we need to focus on. It is as important as maintaining your physical health at this point. So, what I would suggest about mental health and something that we can all do is follow your basic tenants of life, right? You know, sleep well, eat well, do your exercise daily. Those kind of things will help for a person who is not undergoing anything severe or any form of clinical disorder, right? It will just help those people stay in. Yeah. Go ahead. These kind of small simple daily practices will help you keep more mindful more positive and more optimistic you know and if if you need a push you can take up you know journal writing positive affirmations start something new a hobby you know something that you can focus on and keep your mind away from everything that is going because it is a very tumultuous time it is uh, a very uh, scary time indeed and it, you know uh, our brain takes time to process the fact that we are living in a pandemic currently and I, I know from part, that it hit me at various and different points that uh, you know oh shit we are living in a pandemic I cannot just go out you know to the road and street and buy whatever I want or go out with my friends you know for a drink etc etc it is a difficult time and also confined to our houses that is going to put an additional constraint and mental stress over us but for those who are going through something more difficult than most of us right Mm -hmm. I would say please get help at the earliest as and when you require and you feel like it is about time if you feel like you cannot handle it anymore i urge you to contact people who can help you out whether they are an organization whether they are individuals there are always people to help there are always someone you can go through there are helpline numbers set up by the government at this point because they also realize the importance of mental health at this point it is not easy to right. sit at home a day and you know as human beings we naturally tend to be optimistic to have something to right. look were to, to strive for, to work for, sitting at home mm-hmm. all day and, you know, probably working, not working, also whatever the scenario may be, sitting at home is not something that is very encouraging to our mind, right? Absolutely. And then on top of that, you have other very factors like the fact that, you know, everyone of your family staying at home can cause a lot of friction in the family. Then there's the other, oh. factors, you know, the factors that... Yeah. the families that are not safe space enough for a lot of people including you know uh, domestic abuse and uh, LGBTQI plus youth and so that is mm-hmm. also a very scary scenario where we are building you know an atmosphere of negativity and uh, a, a very violent atmosphere not just mentally but also physically possibly and for that reason we need to be on alert and if you are going through something please reach out I'm sure that our, uh, there is always someone or the other who is ready to help. You have your government helpline numbers, you have uh, your NGOs also working all time. So please, uh, I would urge you to like reach out for help. We do really care and we really do want to help. Right. So, uh,
0: like, coming towards the end of it. Now, as you mentioned that we always strive for something. I mean, we always look forward. We are very optimistic so now the only thing i think people are optimistic is about the fact that you know the uh, vaccine is going to come soon it's going to uh, i mean this phase 1 trial is happening phase 2 phase 3 so on and so forth and everybody is eagerly you know watching the news because you know kya hua kya result aaya kitna aage kab aayega vaccine so what do you think that you know is vaccine the solution uh, to eradicating covid completely or like there is something more which needs to be done
1: so what the idea with a vaccine is to create a kind of herd immunity so that the virus cannot uh, infect anybody in that sort of sense is that if 70 percent of the population already has immunity against the va- uh, or against the virus the 30 percent who cannot take the vaccine or who or because of different reasons, you know, different different comorbidities or if these are the most vulnerable population, they will be protected hmm. from the virus itself because the 70% of people cannot get infected, right? Okay. So it's it's okay. like a little bit of an idea of forming a fence around, you know, people who uh, are the most vulnerable group of people, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea of a vaccine is basically to create sort of a, like a herd immunity and that would protect the most vulnerable people too, and that will protect all the other kind of people also who can possibly fall, who are not vulnerable, can, but can fall prey to a severe form of COVID 19. Uh, okay. so the, that is the hope with the vaccine. Now, having a vaccine has its own, uh, problems that come with it, right? To ensure right. safety, the quality of the vaccine, the distribution, the supply chain who will get the vaccine first, are, allowed, are different kinds of companies allowed to make it, you know, who will the property, intellectual property and patent rights go to, and stuff like that. So as much as we are optimistic for a vaccine, there are a lot of other sociopolitical political factors that will play in that, uh, you know, most of us don't consider, but yes, that is. But other than a vaccine come out, even if you say in an ideal condition that a vaccine does come out, And, you know, it is distributed fairly and equally and everything. That doesn't mean or necessarily grant that we will be safe from COVID. For a while, still in life, we would have to take measures and precautions against it. Still, it is entirely safe to say, you know, that the virus has been eliminated. And that, you know, there's no chance of it infecting anyone again.
0: I think that's a long road ahead.
1: Yes, uh, that is a long road ahead. If you've learned anything from history... A, a pandemic never sorts itself out in a year or so. Yes, we do have modern right. technology now. We do have modern ideas and uh, things are working at a faster rate than ever. But if we do look mm-hmm. at history, always takes a few years for a you know a pandemic to sort itself out.
0: Right. Uh, so thank you very very much for taking time out for uh, this podcast. And it was a pleasure having you here. It is a pleasure talking to you. We got to know a lot of things. Uh, on the from from the side of a frontline worker what they are going through how things are unfolding at their end so a big thank you for taking time out thank
1: and it's nice been, it. it been an absolute absolute pleasure and fun to do i'm really grateful to be on board and yes of thank course, you thank you doubt you all can message chirag chirag will relate that to me <laughs>
0: absolutely 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 i will <laughs>
1: Hello. Have a nice day. Oh, thank you.
0: Thank you. You too. Yes. Yes. Right. Uh. Thank you.